Number six. Three Cosmic Messages. Second quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Our moderator is Dr. John Pauline. Our opening prayer will be by Carol. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be gathered together once again to study and learn more about you. It's a joy to be with like-minded believers, Lord, as we search to know you better. We invite your presence, Holy Spirit, to help us open our ears, touch our hearts, that we may learn more. And please be with Pastor John Pauline as he leads us today. Give him wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're getting into a whole series here, as we have been, on the three angels' messages, which is basically seven verses in the book of Revelation. And these are really important verses, as I think we will see. And that's the reason for spending so much time. This lesson and the one to follow are both on the concept of judgment. And that comes from verse seven. So it'd probably be good to reread verse seven as we begin this study. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. All right. So uh, very interesting phrase here. The hour of his judgment. If you go deep into the Greek, it is actually the word order is this. It's the hour of the judgment of him. The hour of the judgment. Fear God. Give God glory for the hour of the judgment of him has come. Now, in the original language, the of him is a genitive, and that can mean a lot of things. It can be like an adjective where you'd be describing what kind of judgment we're talking about. It could be a possessive, the judgment that belongs to God. It could be apposition. The genitive could express that the judgment and God are the same thing. You know, probably not. Most of these are obviously not the case. But what seems to be relevant is the subjective-objective issue. And sorry for going into the weeds here, but I think it's really important that we do so. And that is that a subjective genitive is where the genitive is the subject of an imaginary sentence. So in this case, if it is subjective, then the of God means God is the one doing the judging. All right, that would be a subjective reading. But there's no grammatical reason not to go with the objective reading, which is that God then would be the object of the judgment. He is the one being judged. So if you went with the first reading that God is the one who is judging, then the fear God and give him glory and worship him is all about surviving in that judgment. So it's about us. Okay. The other option, the hour of the judgment of him would mean fearing God, giving him glory and worshiping him is all about speaking in his favor at his judgment. Do you see the difference? It really impacts how we read the text in a solid way. The bad news is that the Greek is ambiguous. You cannot on the basis of the grammar decide whether it's a subjective or an objective genitive. So is this talking about the judgment that God is in charge of? Or is it talking about the judgment directed toward God? It's ambiguous. And here's where we get into a special book of Revelation thing. And that is that John often does double plays with grammar, particularly the genitives, the objective, subjective genitives. After all, 
chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is it the revelation that Jesus gives to us, or is it a revelation about Jesus? And the obvious answer is probably yes, it's both. That would be a Johannine double play. That may be the case here, that on the one hand, this is God's judgment of us. On the other hand, it is our judgment concerning God, and that both of these may well be intended by John, who loves this double play, this potential for expanding the concept beyond an either-or. Uh, Carol? I really like the idea that it can be taken two different ways, both from the viewpoint of the great controversy and us judging God, that his government is fair, that he is truthful, and the way of looking at it like God is the doctor and he's diagnosing us. And so we're happy for his judgment because we want to be healed. And so we worship him as creator and redeemer, having the ability to change us into what we were meant to be. All right. Thank you. There is, however, a text in the New Testament that is not ambiguous. And let's go take a look at that. That's Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Romans chapter 3. And verse 4. By no means, although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. All right. So your text says prevail in your judging. My NIV says prevail when you judge. The King James, on the other hand, as I remember, says to prevail when you are judged. So what's the truth here? When we dig uh, below the surface again, the Romans 3, 4 is saying that you might prevail when you are judged. It's hard to express the Greek here, but this is a different, this is not a genitive where you have the ambiguity. This is an infinitive in order that you might prevail in the to judge you. That's just taking the words as they are in the to judge you. It's an infinitive, you know, like to run, to teach a class, etc. But in the Greek, the object of the infinitive operates like the subject of an imaginary sentence. So in the to judge of you, God is the subject of the judging in this case, that God is the one on trial. And it's interesting because that actually comes from Psalm 51.4, and they're almost identical in the Greek, Psalm 51. And verse 4. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. All right. Both of these take it as God's judgment rather than the judgment of God. But the Greek there is similar. It's this infinitive clause. However, the Hebrew of Psalm 51.4 is ambiguous. In the Hebrew, it's not clear if it is God that is judging or God that is being judged. So that's kind of the background. You have this tension within Scripture regarding the judgment and what, if any, relationship it might have to God. Livius? I wonder if we can strengthen our position and look at Laodicea, the last day church. And I believe you mentioned that Laodicea means judgment of the people. And again, you could look at that maybe in two ways. Are the people being judged or are the people doing the judging? 
and I'm reminded here, this, the three angels' messages, how long, I'm reminded of Elijah, where he says on Mount Carmel, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. So, God is being judged here. And in the three angels, there's two choices of who you worship. And I think it goes back to Laodicea being lukewarm and not deciding, making a decision of who they worship. So I see this, I like to see this as God being judged, and we have to make a decision. The people of the last day need to decide who they worship. Well, it's fascinating to me. I just called up the page where I have my Bible translations, and let me just run through these. This is, this is fascinating. Uh, the ESV says, prevail when you are judged. King James says, overcome when thou art judged. The New American Standard, prevail when thou art judged. New English, when you are judged. So it doesn't seem like Romans is too ambiguous there, does it? Then you get the NIV, however, prevail when you judge. And the New Revised Standard, prevail in your judging. But the Revised Standard said, when thou art judged. And the New King James, when you are judged. So six out of the eight translations that I'm consulting here all think it is clear that it is God is the one being judged in this text. And two of them, however, go the other way, probably because it's a tough text. What does it mean that God is judged? If you don't have the whole cosmic conflict background, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense to the average translator. But I think Romans 3, 4 is pretty clear, even if Revelation 14, 7 is ambiguous. All right, Larry. How do we make good news out of a concept of judgment? And to me, the idea is that when there's judgment, there's a trial somewhere. So if the purpose of this is to outline a trial, the whole purpose then is that somebody has to be held accountable. And so if Paul is correct in the, the basic understanding that you're laying out here, that it's God that's somehow on trial, it's really good news. God is going to put himself out there to be held accountable for everything that has happened from the beginning of time, even before we were an item to contend with. The good news is not that I'm going to avoid trial, because if we as a group, I do something wrong that harms everybody, and I go to court, and I'm not held accountable, and I come back tomorrow, clearly it didn't learn my lesson. It's good news for me that I didn't get held accountable, but I don't see how that's good news for the rest of you. And nothing has changed in how I am going to relate to you. So I think all of this gets tied together. And it becomes very complicated. Okay. Thank you for those thoughts. Michael, let's hear from a lawyer. Well, I have a question rather than an answer. My question is this. The New Testament is a Greek book, but were these translations? I mean, Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic. They didn't speak Greek. And if so, are these are trans when did this happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the Greek was the language of the empire. And it was widely spoken in Roman Palestine. So there was a study done of tombstones in Galilee, and they found about one-third were in Greek, one-third were in Hebrew, and one-third were in Aramaic. So Hebrew was the language of the synagogue, the scriptures that would be read there, but they'd often translate the Hebrew into Aramaic for the sake of the synagogue. 
but then there were Greek-speaking synagogues even in Jerusalem. Acts refers to that. So you definitely, the Greek language was fairly common. And if you're going to write the story of Jesus in a language everybody can understand, that would be Greek. And so the missionary impetus of the New Testament turned out to be Greek, but it's Greek with kind of a Hebrew mentality. And uh, you already have the Old Testament, which was a translation of the Hebrew into Greek, but that's already a very Hebrewized Greek. And the New Testament builds on that when it quotes the Old Testament. So, yeah, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. The original apostles would have spoken in Aramaic, but the minute they hit the Greek world, they would have to do some Greek speaking. Now, there's question whether John is very good at Greek, because in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of grammatical errors, or at least it seems that way to us. And if that is the case, then John's secretary was there to help, you know, straighten up John's Greek when he wrote the gospel but he may not have had that kind of support when he was in Patmos. So yeah, your observation's a good one. The language background, there's definitely a shift from Aramaic to Greek when the New Testament comes along, and as such, you're going to lose some things. Joachim Jeremias translated Matthew back into Aramaic and found it full of jokes, riddles, and puns. The sayings of Jesus. Jesus is apparently pretty funny and pretty memorable in the stuff that he said. So you miss that in the Greek, and you certainly miss it in translation to the English as well. But the word of God in our native language is sufficient for salvation. And so we plow ahead, not being discouraged if we miss a nuance or two here and there. Neil? As to the languages, wasn't the sign on the top of the cross in multiple languages? It was. But coming back to this other situation, we come back to the book of Job, look at the challenge of Satan to God's judgment. When we come down to the millennium, isn't this a challenge in review of God's judgments? God is the one that's on trial at that point, not us. The judgment for us has already been done. The judgment was done before Christ came to bring us back to heaven. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that judgment and gospel are tied together in Revelation 14, which we'll yeah. come back to. The Who judgment, knows? whatever it is, it's not something that those who follow Jesus are supposed to be afraid of. All right, Lou? Well, in regards to Jesus or God being judged, I think God is inviting us to look and judge who he is and people that have made up their minds that he's vindictive and harsh and all of that. It's the picture of God, like you said so many times here, that we become who we think God is, who we follow. And so I think God invites us and wants us to judge him, to look and study and find out who he is. And I think that's part of what is being said here is for us to do that research and search him out and judge him for who he is as best as we can from a human level. And it sounds like judgment is not intended to be such a negative word. If creatures can judge God, it must not be a super negative thing, but it must be more about transparency and knowledge, etc. And here are all the conversations that's been going on. I'm struck by the contrast between God encouraging maybe even us to judge him. I hear nothing about Satan encouraging the great accuser saying, you know, judge me, look at my record, etc. The contrast is really quite stark on how they both behave. 
And so it is interesting how one once it's rather transparent and the other one is quite opaque. And I think like in the great controversy, there is this stark contrast between the behavior of the two principles. Good point, I think. Carol? A couple of comments. One, I love the fact that Jesus told jokes or puns. As a public speaker, he would be drawing in his audience. I mean, not everybody probably was ready for the heavy stuff he had to share, but just knowing he had that. When I go and I hear a speaker, a sermon being told, it's the stories, it's the things that you can relate to, the slight jokes that kind of draw you in before he gets to the actual meat of the message. I just like that picture of Jesus. The other thing, judgment, I think in our day has a punitive connotation, something bad coming down. And yet, didn't David say, search me and see if there's any wicked way in me? So he wasn't scared of being judged by God, more like diagnose me so you can heal me, Lord. This is what I want. And I think to look forward to the judgment for that reason, because He who we know has the answer to our problems. Uh, He's faithful to complete what he started in us, and he'll do the job. Mm -hmm. One of these jokes does come through a little bit in John 10, where everybody's mad at Jesus. They all picked up stones, you know, and they're threatening. And at that point, Jesus puts his hand up and says, time out. He says, Mm -hmm. I have a question. He says, I've done this good work and that good work and that good work and that good work. For which of these are you stoning me right now? The situation's serious, but that's kind of funny, you know, to come in at that point, you know, well, okay, I did all these good things. Which one of them has made you so angry? And uh, you get just a glimpse of it. Yeah. In their culture, some things may have been funny. I don't always get British humor, okay? I was just wondering if there's things we just miss out because of the culture. Mm -hmm. Michael? I read a commentary about the Sermon on the Mount. If you translate it back into the Aramaic, it's full of a lot of jokes. We take it so solemnly, but maybe there's just a great deal of humor that we don't understand. And I can remember back when laughing was on TV, the phrase socket to me became a joke. But unless you lived at that time and somebody would say socket to me, you wouldn't understand that it was really a joke. It wasn't an invitation to hit me. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Hebrew is just full of its puns and not everyone likes puns but uh, Hebrew's full of them. I'll give you one just quick example that popped into my head, and that is the name Isaac. The name Isaac is Yitzhak, you know, kind of like this. It's laughter. It's the Hebrew word for laughter. And God names Isaac that because his mother laughed when she was told that she would have a baby. So Isaac was the product of laughter in that sense. And so when you're reading the Hebrew, you're constantly seeing these words being repeated and the names often are very funny in context. So it's part of a whole corporate personality there that I think Jesus was very much a part of. Henry. Just to follow with what Carol was mentioning, probably it's important to set ourselves under the understanding of that economy on that time, because the Jewish people Consider judges not as people against them, but actually that was God appointed to rescue them from their enemies. So having a judge judging for you was good news, was having somebody on your side. And sometimes we have our mentality set in our context today, which is different of the purpose of a judge in the Jewish mentality. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Thank you. 
Let's go to number two and reread Revelation 14, but this time verses six and seven. Then I saw another angel flying in mid heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. All right, so here you notice that the same angel announces two things. Number one, he has the everlasting gospel. And when he opens his mouth, you get fear God, give him glory, worship him, because the hour of his judgment has come. So whatever judgment means, it must be seen in the light of the gospel. It must be seen in the light of God's favor toward the human race, not something particularly to be feared. And here's where the lesson author takes us back again to Psalm 51, because we've already seen that Psalm 51 is connected to Revelation 14.7. But let's go back and read the context. If the context of judgment in chapter 14 is the everlasting gospel, what is the context of judgment in Psalm 51? So it's Psalm 51, beginning with verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. All right. You notice here that David, this is in the context of Bathsheba, etc., and he's saying, have mercy on me. In the Hebrew, that's hineni. And there's even a Jewish song, hineni, talking about the mercy of God. According to your hesed, to your unfailing love, according to your great mercy, it's racham, a word that's also common in the Quran, you know, that God is merciful and compassionate. So the character of God is featured in here. And what is the purpose of David confessing his sin in order that you, God, might be blameless in the judgment? So that judgment will explore both David's character and God's. And the value of our repentance is more than simply saving us. The value of our repentance is a voice in God's favor in that eschatological judgment. So two things coming out of this. Number one, when you think of yourself, always tie judgment with the gospel, always tie it with God's favor, his mercy, his compassion, as David does. And number two, keep in mind that when you confess your sins, you're speaking well of God because you're not blaming God for your sin or blaming God for the condition that you're in, but you're setting the record straight for the final judgment. All right, Livius. The ESV has verse 4, the end of verse 4. It says that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's ambiguous, which the Hebrew is. So, <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good translation. The ESV is very careful about the original language and usually 
respects when there's ambiguity and does an English that preserves that ambiguity. So yeah, good catch. Could we say, so that you may be set right in your words and blameless in your judgment? Does that make the judgment about God? God is being judged. Mm -hmm. It helps a little bit, but I think the Hebrew here is ambiguous and maybe intentionally so. But the Greek translators didn't think of it as ambiguous. They pretty much say it's God's judgment. So I think they may have taken their cue from the earlier statement, as you point out. Lou? As human beings, we look and make observations about other human beings' behavior, and sometimes we're pretty narrow in our observations are actually kind of like judgments. And I just love, absolutely love the concept of God who is so inclusive and how you have brought out that God is working in every heart, in every nation. And the Holy Spirit has been places where humans have never been to teach the natives or people about who God is. And I think it just blows my mind, literally, to think how magnanimous and big is God, that he is so inclusive and so loving that he doesn't want anybody to perish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Appreciate the reminder of all that. Larry? Question on Psalm 51. In the chronology of David's life, did this happen before the child was born or after the child was born that came out of this rendezvous? And the reason I'm asking that question is because, as I understand it, this was before, and so nothing has befallen David at this point. So the only idea that he has of God's judgment is that the prophet has come to him and said, Larry, by the way, what you did was wrong, and you really displeased God. And David then asked for the new heart. So that's my understanding of how that developed. If that's wrong, I think then that becomes very useful in understanding the word and the concept of judgment. Because here, it's just God said, Larry, you made a mistake. Well, David was a massive screw-up in so many ways. And yet God says he's a man after my own heart. And one can also often wrestle with that. And I think here we see what God was talking about. David spent quite a bit of time after this not confessing. And it's only when it's pointed out to him. But here's the interesting thing. When Samuel pointed out Saul's sin, how did he respond? Justifying himself. When Nathan points out David's sin, how does he respond? He immediately says, you know, I have sinned against the Lord. The moment it clicks in his mind, his whole being is saying, uh-oh, I screwed up bad. It's my fault, not God's. And so his natural instinct was to, rather than strike back or rather than defend himself, was to admit the truth that had come upon him. And so David's natural response was instantaneous at that point. And that was before punishment, et cetera. So, okay. So if it was before the punishment, then that sheds a whole different light on the phrase and idea of judgment. It's really just an idea that, hey, you've done something wrong. And now the process of how that gets solved is now put into place. And you've described accurately and very well what happened to Saul in this mental condition he was in. So, because we get hung up on this idea that judgment is always God bringing some kind of an action. And really the action is God's bringing us into direct 
confrontation with the thing that we did wrong. Mm-hmm. Yes, well put. Carol? I was thinking in Psalm 51, when David says, you know, against thee and thee only have I sinned, it connected in my mind with Job, because as God's friend, God obviously said David was a man after his own heart, as you said, he's a representative of who God is. And so he's a representative of God's judgment of who he is, as this is a man after my own heart, just as Job was being judged in the greater cosmic conflict picture as being a righteous man. And it was God's judgment that was being called into question. So the sin is really, just like Moses, when he struck the rock twice, is a purported friend of God giving the wrong picture of who God is, kind of what Lucifer did. And the other thing that gets me is we talk about the everlasting gospel or the eternal gospel. That was before man was made, back in eternity, there was good news. It is about God, isn't it? And who he is. Yeah, if the gospel is before creation, then it's got to be bigger than just saving the human race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good connection. Thank you. Aaron? The purpose of his judgment is for salvation. And we either fall on the rock like David, or in the words of, forget who said it, but they said, we can never evade the truth. We can only delay the day we deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think, yes, God is judging in a sense, but we're judging ourselves is what Jesus also said by our rejection or acceptance. Yes. Good point. All right, Michael. Yeah. David's sin was multiple. First of all, He arranged the murder of Bathsheba's husband, and he didn't seduce Bathsheba. He raped her. And so, but what he did then was recognize that he had sinned against God and against man and confessed it. And it's an example how God's forgiveness is available to anyone, regardless how serious the sin might be. And it highlights the love of God that God has for each and every one of us. Mm, Thank you. God accepts our best efforts. God accepts our intentions, which often our families don't, (laughs) don't always see. Number three, Revelation 2012. What is the basis for judgment? Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also, another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. All right, so this text, I think, speaks very strongly, and several other texts as well, that judgment is according to works. But I thought we were saved by faith. How do saved by faith and judged by works come together? And I like to put it this way. In the judgment, the question that really matters is, what do you think of God? What do you think of Christ? That is the question of the judgment. Where the works come in, they are the evidence of what you're thinking. They're the evidence of how you relate to God. You remember we sometimes talk about how you become like the God you worship? And with that in mind, your picture of God impacts who you are. If the question is, what do you think of God? What do you think of Christ? The judgment is about how did you treat other people? The picture you have of God that becomes the model for how you behave. And so works are rightly a factor in the judgment because they are the clearest evidence 
as to what's going on in our minds and as to the kind of trust we have or don't have in God. So they're really quite close together, like mind and body. Your picture of God impacts how you treat other people. All right, Rusty? Yeah, I liked your comments. Just a simple illustration is if you judge a chair to be capable of holding you up, you sit in it. If you look at a chair, well, I don't think that would hold me up. You don't sit in it. So it's like you said, just the evidence demonstrates that. I just want to make a comment on something that was previously said about David and being a man after God's own heart. I've said this before in this forum, but I'll share it again. Because I think it's so significant as to what really about his life was significant that God would say that. And I think that as Absalom was rebelling from him, his own son, just like God had his first creation, essentially, Lucifer, rebel from him. When the disciples were excited about casting out the demons, Jesus said, that's not exciting to me, in a sense. When Absalom died and David is weeping for the loss of his son, he said, I wish it was me rather than you, himself rather than his son. That, in a sense, is how God feels about each one of us. And I think that's how he imitates the heart of God in the sense that on the cross, Jesus demonstrated that our life is worth so much to him. I think that expresses that same kind of thing. Mm. Thank you. Carol? In the book of life, could we kind of say that that's like a doctor's files that he has on any individual patient that shows their illnesses and also shows what the doctor prescribed, but the patient didn't follow the doctor's orders and so was unhealed? For the doctor, it's proof that his judgment was correct. His diagnosis was correct, but it was all on the patient because they didn't follow the prescribed treatment. I kind of like looking at it that way more than just exactly what the person did, the outward works, but it could be the condition of the heart and the mind. Like you said, John, about their thoughts about who God is and why they decided not to follow the very good advice that was given. Yeah, I think that's a helpful analogy. I do want to mention, I really like Rusty's analogy of the chair. That was kind of graphic and comes pretty close to you. Do you trust that this chair will hold you? You Mm -hmm. Do you trust the physician, I think, is sort of where you're coming from, Carol. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the evidence of that trust is whether or not you carry out the instructions that you're given. All right, Neil? Imitation is the finest form of flattery. If we love God, we'll imitate him. And by imitating him, our works will imitate the works that God would have done. Therefore, our works are a true representation of our feelings about God. Hmm. That's interesting because our next lesson is on worship and the question, what is worship? So I hope you bring that thought back when we get to that, because that, it seems like you're describing a little bit what worship is all about. All right, Livius? Uh, with respect to the Book of Life and the works that they had done, I wonder if we can connect it to John seventeen three. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You have to do something to know someone. So I wonder if, if that can help us give us an understanding of what these people have done. They've taken the time to know God, to know Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking back to what Carol said, to what really, in a sense, are the books of heaven like? And that was a question I was going to toss out to you all, but we're not going to have time. But the Bible talks about books, pictures God kind of like a lawyer's office, you know, with the row after row of uh, earlier judgments and so on. But today we might think of hard drives or even the cloud and maybe be a little closer to the reality than we were before. 
Henry. I would also like to argue that actions, works, are a reflection typically of who we were, not necessarily of who we are, because actions can only be referred to to something that happened in a point in time. But I can continue to be developing ideas, mental positions, like the thief on the cross. All that was in his book of life were actions, and all of them were bad. Hmm. And that was not a problem, because the mindset is what is important at this point. So I would argue that sometimes we are preoccupied about our works, and that's not what God is looking for, because works will be always in the past. But my mind will continue to look forward, even at the very time that I am just doing my last bad deed and thinking, man, I messed up. That was wrong. And uh, doing the change. So I think this is what God is looking for, my mind, and not necessarily a reflection of the past of who I was. Okay. Yeah, certainly the works would be evidence of that mind, and sometimes, as you say, feeble evidence, but evidence nevertheless. Michael? I'm also reminded of the epistle of James. He says, faith without works is dead. And also that Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said that just faith alone, that what he called cheap grace, the way we live our lives does have meaning. And I think that one of the ways that we reflect our faith and grace from God is trying to accord to everybody else with whom we have in contact their own human dignity and not transgress against anyone. That's easy for me to say right here. The difficult part is when I leave this meeting and go out there in the world and have to confront them, those other people in the world. Well, here's the interesting thing. Sometimes religious debates can be quite helpful. On the Protestant side, there's emphasis on distinguishing faith and works. If you get them confused, you may end up trying to save yourself. In Catholicism, on the other hand, the emphasis is on uniting the two. Don't think that you know you can believe one thing and do another. The two are tied together. And both of those, I think, are true to Scripture, even though they're in tension with each other. The reality is, uh, like mind and body, faith and works are intimately related. At the same time, I think it can be helpful to distinguish them so as to make sure we don't end up thinking the works are everything that matters and not the trust. So yeah, that is a debate that one can come back to it and say, well, I think there's some truth on both sides. How do we keep a balance here? All right. With one eye on the clock, let's go to number six. And it says, read Revelation 5, 1 to 6. If this is a picture of judgment, who is being judged here? And I say that because the lesson author seems to suggest that Revelation 5 is a judgment scene, even though the language of judgment isn't there. And if we'd had more time, we would have gone into that and compared with Daniel 7 and so forth and evaluated that concept. But taking it at face value, as was stated in the lesson, this is a judgment scene. So my question is, who is being judged here? And Terry, would you read Revelation 5, 1 to 6? Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. All right. So if this is a judgment scene, who's being judged? It seems to me that the lamb is the one being judged. The question that goes out, who is worthy? We're looking for somebody who's worthy to open the scroll, whatever that means. Apparently, whatever it is, is really important because everybody's going crazy when it doesn't sound like anyone can do it. So this is a question. It's an assertion, if nothing else, that the lamb has passed judgment, that the lamb is worthy. And the basis of his worthiness is the actions that he did while he was on earth and in the cross. In what way could you say that what happened at the cross was judgment? Is that what seems to be asserted here? That Revelation 5 is discussing the worthiness of Christ, worthiness of the Lamb, that there's a judgment seen here in the first century. Larry? If it can be reasonably stated as true that judgment equals to accountability, the event on the cross was the natural outward of events that had been in play for thousands of years, and the accountability of God understanding how it was going to play out was vindicated and therefore was judged for being accurate. Okay, thank you. Henry? There was an accusation about God's character, and he was put to test, having all power, being almighty, and being abused in the way that he was, and not lifting a finger, but actually opening his heart, was the purest and most stronger evidence to make his case of being the God that he always claimed to be, not by claims, but now by demonstration. Put in that, treated by the lower creatures in the universe, abusing him and him loving them back. That was the judgment and the purest revelation of who he was or who he is. And to add to what Henry has said, let me direct you to John 12 and verse 31. It's not stated in the lesson, but I think Henry's comments demand that we take a look at that. John 12, verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Right, clearly, there's a judgment at the cross. And the New Testament is very clear on that. There is a judgment at the end, but there's also a judgment at the cross. And that seems to be what Revelation 5 is talking about, that both the character of God and the human race are in some way under judgment there at the cross. All right. Well, I keep hearing the words revelation and revealing and demonstration, and I think that about judgment too. And at the cross, I remember reading that it was at the cross where Satan's disguise was torn away, and nobody in the onlooking universe had any use for him anymore, and also any doubt that what he said was actually wrong. Mm -hmm. And coming back to John 12, he says, now is the judgment. Now the prince of this world will be cast down. 
So at the cross, Satan lost his standing in heaven. At the cross came a significant piece of the judgment. And we'll come back to it before we close as to what exactly we mean by judgment here. But I think we're approaching closer and closer. So for the New Testament is actually judgment occurs in three contexts. The first is at the cross. And in the person of Jesus Christ, there is a judgment of the entire world. The second judgment is judgment in the preaching of the gospel. Wherever the gospel goes forth, people are invited to view the cross and to learn everything there is to learn by that. And how they respond to that message also determines the third judgment, which is the judgment at the end that seems to be in view in Revelation 14.7. And that is in the end, there's an evaluation of both God and the human race as to how everything should work out in those cases. So for the New Testament, there's three different types of judgment. And for me, a positive is that I think a lot of people think like, I'm right with God today, but what if when my name comes up in heaven, there's a reversal of that verdict? In other words, the judgment is fearful for many because they think that somehow the judgment might reverse our own judgment on ourselves. And what the New Testament does is tie these together. Jesus says, in the judgment, your own words will determine. Your own responses will determine. In other words, the judgment is ratifying decisions you have already made, and it's not a threat to somehow overturn your best intentions. That, for me, has been helpful because I think originally growing up Adventist, often there was the feeling that, yeah, well, you might be right with God today, but the judgment could reverse all that, so be careful. All right, Rusty. The import of Revelation 5 is many times we read that so fast, we cruise over it very quickly and forget that John's weeping. And you get the idea from John as you read through that, that this is such importance that if Christ is judged unworthy, that the whole plan of salvation and the whole characterization of who God really is is failing. And we get the idea that maybe this scroll means like a right to rule, that God would even allow his creatures to choose if he actually to judge, if he has the right to rule from what Jesus has revealed on the earth. It is actually amazing. Imagine being in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and you just bring up the question, do you have the right to rule? You just lost your head. Mm -hmm. The closest soldier. Then here's the court in heaven. And God is allowing this question to even come up is amazing to me. Was that revelation that Jesus did, was that enough, essentially? It blows my mind to contemplate this whole concept of that's freedom in its fullest entirety explained in in Revelation 5. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bob? I was thinking when we're talking about what was going on at the cross, when Christ said it is finished, it seems like that was the moment when he recognized that he had stood the test on this question. And obviously, he would understand a lot more what that meant than probably people like me. But it does seem to be kind of the climactic point where he recognized he had revealed the character of God. That, to me, is what it says. That was sort of where he recognized he had won the battle of demonstrating the character of God. I suspect there will be some things in heaven we won't fully understand, even in eternity. The gap between creator and creature is that big. But we will enjoy getting as close up to that line as we are capable of. Livius. I was reminded of Joshua 24, verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Mm. That's kind of the three angels' messages, isn't it? Isn't that the three angels' messages? Mm. And I think God revealed his character on the cross. And a choice is a judgment. When we choose, we make a judgment. All right. Larry. I'd like to comment a bit on what you said about the fear of judgment and the potential reversal of my decision about the person I am. I think it's in Matthew where he talks about the people who says, enter into the kingdom because you did this, this, and this. And they said, uh, excuse me, Lord, uh, when did we ever do that? So there are people who potentially may actually be surprised to find themselves invited to come into the kingdom. And in Matthew, there's clearly people who are going to be surprised when they didn't get the invitation. And I fully appreciate that you verbalized that fear because I lived probably the first 50 years of my life with that kind of fear, and it has taken 20 years to work through unlearning that. And I am certain that there's lots of people who are caught in that dilemma, and I think it's useful that we help bring some hope to them. Thank you. And you did put your finger, I think, on a key text there of the surprise in the judgment. And what that can often do is steal assurance. You know, how can I have assurance when I'm likely to be surprised in the judgment? So there's a tension there, I think. And many Adventists have gravitated toward the fear of the judgment, the fear of the surprise, more than accept the evidences that are available to us now that we are right with God. And the Bible does say you can know that you have eternal life. So perhaps those who are surprised in the judgment on the negative side are people who had a false sense of their own goodness. And I think the closer we come to Jesus, the less likely we are to have such a false sense of our own goodness. On the other hand, there are some that are so absorbed in doing for others, they're not particularly worried about their salvation. They're just busy doing what God has told them to do. And those will be surprised at how significant some of those little actions were when the time comes. All right, we are almost to the end of our time. And the very last part of the lesson and the very first part, in a sense, asked the same question. So I want to do that. We'll use the language of part one of our handout. After Romans 3, 4, it says, in response to this text, the lesson states, God is a God of judgment. And so I want you to ponder the question, what is judgment? How do you reconcile the Bible's emphasis on judgment with a gracious God, or perhaps differently. Maybe let's focus on this one. What does judgment tell us about God? Henry? I will say that that tells me that he is preoccupied with me. He is worried about my well-being, that he is eager to diagnose where the problems are if I am willing and trusting that he can have a solution for that. He is like a good doctor, just mm -hmm. waiting for me to do the blood work and all the testing necessary so he can help me. Mm, thank you. Good analogy. Michael? It's an affirmation of free will that God grants to each and every one of us. And salvation is an open gift that I can accept if I want it. And at this moment, I accept it. And I don't foresee anything in the future which would cause me to reject it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Lou? God knows who would be happy in heaven for eternity with him. And no matter where they're at in life now or where they've been or where we come from, if we will be happy in heaven through eternity, 
with him. We'll be there. That's my understanding. And that's very comforting. Mm. Rusty. When Jesus appeared to Daniel, he fell on his face. There's something about being in that light that you just see yourself in a whole new light, so to speak. God's not maybe actively condemning you, but just his light, his presence, his knowing you to the deepest part of your atoms, it just brings up to you, in a sense, the reality of who you are. He loves you, and yet you see the reality of who you are. In fact, in Gethsemane, Jesus is experiencing, in a sense, what the wicked will experience, just no excuses face-to-face, in a sense, with God, realizing the depth and horribleness of sin. And it's not judgmental, so to speak. It's not against you. It's just the facts and how they are. It's not any preconceived idea coming from God, in a sense. It's just truth and light coming to the forefront of your mind. All right, Iris? I'd like to shift a little bit away from the problem of our personal brokenness and fear to not make it to heaven. And suggest that the judgment is the good news of Revelation 5, that God is well able to provide a solution for the disaster that has happened in this world. There are the voices of those crying out under the altar saying, how long, Lord? And the judgment is the good news that God will deliver, that he will set and make things right. It's the hope of restoration. That is what judgment tells me. God, that is true, of course, for my individual life. God can handle it. God is able to work despite my brokenness, overcome my brokenness. But it's also true for the world at large. And in that sense, I'd like to suggest this is the wonderful hope that Revelation gives us, that God will judge and that things will be restored to the way they should be. Mm, thank you very much. As I look at judgment, several words come into mind. One of them is transparency. A purpose of judgment is to get all the facts on the table, to be completely open and transparent with the universe. That's hard for us to imagine because we're used to hiding, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. But the purpose of judgment is transparency. And to the degree that we can embrace that, healing will come. It's when we bury stuff in the past and we try to hide away from it that it keeps coming back to haunt us when we least expect it. So transparency is one key element of judgment, getting all the facts on the table. The second is fairness. Things are not fair in this world. Things are not just. Things are not balanced. Oppression exists. And the judgment is about the restoration of equal treatment and fairness. The judgment is also about meaning and purpose. The judgment remembers when a mother wakes up at three in the morning to comfort a crying baby. It's a very small thing, but it's never forgotten. The good things we do, the kindness we show, etc. None of that is forgotten. It will all be there in the judgment. As Jesus said, if someone even brings a cup of cold water to a child, it'll be remembered in the judgment. The judgment provides meaning and purpose to our lives. Everything we do matters, and judgment will demonstrate that. And finally, as several have said, judgment is revelation. It's revealing what the transparency has discovered. It's revealing the truth, uh, the truth about us, the truth about God. And so judgment's not about power over judgment is about truth, and it applies to God 
as well as to us. And ultimately, what the judgment will reveal is the goodness and the grace of God. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we can talk about judgment in the context of your love for us, your positive intentions toward us. We don't need to be afraid of the judgment, except to the degree that we are afraid to expose ourselves to you, to tell the truth about ourselves, which is what confession is all about. I pray that you would help us to desire that transparency more than anything else and to grow and to learn alongside with it. And I thank you, Lord, that we've come to know you better. And I pray that in that assurance that we can stand with confidence in the day of judgment, for we ask your presence in the name of Jesus. Amen.